The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. at portraits of Christ in notable passages, thinking of them perhaps as billboards at the side of a road if someone was driving down the road and passed 12 or 13 billboards with different emphases of the life of Christ. Uh, That's what I intend we're still doing, and we're in about the ninth week of that now. And we looked at the cross last week. We look now at the great event following the cross And I ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Many of you know this is the most extensive New Testament chapter that argues for and applies the truth of the resurrection. Certainly the the event itself is told in the Gospels, but Paul writing to the Corinthians had this extensive portion in which we're sure he'd been asked many questions. When does the resurrection happen? What will it be like? Particularly, what has happened to those Christian brothers and sisters who have died already? And uh, he was seeking to answer those questions. I'm not reading the whole chapter. In fact, I'm breaking in in the midst of things in verse 20, where he has first addressed the fact of the resurrection, that some people question that it even occurred. And Paul has addressed that, and I come in with his argument beginning at verse 20 here of 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all, that is all believers, be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That is, when all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And now go to the closing section there, beginning at verse 50 of that same chapter. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, And we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may this victory ring as an anthem and a battle cry in our lives. We ask you to reveal the truth we need to hear. For Jesus' sake, amen. In the late 19th century, a playwright named Oscar Wilde lived in England. You may know something about Oscar Wilde, maybe you don't, but uh, I can tell you he was a man who was not at all a believing Christian, nor did his life reflect anything very honorable. But on the few occasions that he wrote about Christian subjects, he resorted to rather biting satire. He had a play called Salome, which it was about uh, the uh, stepdaughter of Herod Antipas who put John the Baptist to death. And uh, in one scene, the speaker is Herod, who had recently executed John the Baptist, and a report comes to Herod that Jesus, a new prophet, is going about the land raising people from the dead. And the humor comes when Herod indignantly declares, I forbid this man Jesus from raising the dead. He must be found and told at once that I do not allow anyone to raise the dead. I love that every time I read it. The humor of a shallow politician who actually thinks he can shut off the great power of God over the grave and stop what Jesus is doing in miracles with his own puny political commands. I wonder if you've ever thought much about the fact that we Christians take the subject of the resurrection of the dead and we put it in a box labeled Easter. And then we put the box on a shelf until another year passes by and Easter comes around again. My wife and I have taken down all our Christmas decorations. It's amazing how many plastic tubs they fill nowadays just to celebrate Christmas. If you have an artificial tree, you've got a lot of things that have to be put away. I feel like we do that with Easter. You felt that perhaps uh, in, in the last hymn that I chose. You What are we singing this for? It's not Easter. Well, I ask you to look at the words of that hymn and ask you, why in the world wouldn't we sing that many, many times a year instead of boxing Easter up and saying, why, it only belongs on a certain day on the church calendar. We need to learn to raise up to our risen, glorious Christ hallelujahs, not just one Sunday a year, but every day of the year. We serve a living God and a living Savior, and the resurrection of Christ is the center focus of that. And we should be able to be here in July and sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, or up from the grave he arose, and it wouldn't sound out of place. And yet it does, doesn't it, in the way we practice things. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has a great effect on Christian people right now, today, as well as on a great final day of history when Christ returns and 
brings with him those who have died and rest in him. And we all, the scripture says, especially 1 Thessalonians 4, we all will receive our resurrection bodies. And I love the phrase there. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're going to look at that, by the way, before February ends, the return of Christ. But by faith today, we already are living, even though we don't have those resurrection bodies. Christ has already won the battle of resurrection. And we who know him and honor him and trust in him have been, the scripture says, regenerated, born again, to live all new lives in body and spirit today. I trust that I speak to an audience that primarily knows that born-again Christians are not some special species with strange beings that have three ears and four eyes or something like that. If you are a Christian, truly, you are born again. You've been given a new life from Christ. And last time in Mark 15, we beheld Christ on his cross with the Father's pleasure turned away from him, wrath as it were, because God could not stand in his holy presence to look upon evil. And here was the Son who never sinned but was turned into evil personified and the Father had to turn away. Horrible moment. Most awful moment in all of history. And yet it's a moment that Christians look at solemnly and say, there is the crux of our salvation. He bore judgment on our behalf, and so we don't have to bear it. And we all we should know this, but let me remind you that we always have to pair with the cross the resurrection. Otherwise, the cross is meaningless. You know the expression, the other shoe dropped. Without being crude about it, you could call the resurrection the second shoe, the drops. Jesus has died to pay the penalty for sin. Jesus is alive. In a real body, he came alive. And that gives meaning and lasting effect to his work on the cross. Otherwise, the cross is a hollow thing. It's only a victory of a great martyr who loved people and did something courageous and and not self-serving, but it really was of no effect. It was only a martyr's high ideals and nothing more if Jesus' bones could be found somewhere moldering in Palestinian dust. Jesus rising in a real glorified body means that grim death itself does not and cannot win its epic battle waged against the Son of God and the people of God. Peter, or Paul, I'm sorry, took up the subject of resurrection and its consequences in the very extensive chapter I read from, only part of the chapter I read from, 1 Corinthians 15. I want to just uh, sort of be a stone skipping across the surface of this passage because there are many subjects here to really explore much more deeply. We'd have to have four or five messages to really get into everything that is taught here. But the first point I present to you comes in verses 20 to 23 to say this, the resurrection of Christ is historically certain and wonderfully transferable. It is historically certain and wonderfully transferable. Paul was moved apparently by questions that the believers at Corinth were asking about this subject. Probably their most focused question is, what has happened to 
believers who have already died. Did they miss it all? We're, we're looking for Christ's return, and many would say that first century Christians saw the immediacy of Christ's return, and they expected it to happen in their lifetimes. And maybe they were already saying, where is the Lord? He, we thought he would have returned by now, and many of our number have died. What happens to them? Well, first of all, you need to see that Paul is talking with them about a real event, a historic, certain event. And actually, he begins speaking to that at the very start of the chapter, the parts I didn't read up to verse 20. Speak to it, the certainty, the proofs that stand firm, that let us believe that this is a real thing we're talking about. You know, you hear these on Easter. I've myself run through the dozen or so rather sure kinds of proof, the Roman guard, the absence of the body, the fact that nobody could produce a body, the fact that an elaborate alibi had to be created by his enemies, and all the other things that combined to make us say, yes, the resurrection truly is happening in history. Well, Paul doesn't go into all of those here. He just gives us a quick summary, and uh, he says he mainly rests on the appearances to over 500 people, many of whom are still alive, he says. You want to consult them? Go ask them. And he says also to the other disciples, including Peter, and last of all to me as one untimely born. You see, Paul didn't feel he had to work too hard to prove that the resurrection was an object of real history, not a myth. And anyone who argues that it did not happen is promoting a lie. It's interesting to stop and think for a minute if you wonder about the day. When was 1 Corinthians written? Well, I don't suppose you're ready to pop up and tell me that, but it was about A.D. 55. Jesus died about A.D. 30. So we're dealing with a 25-year gap from event to discussion by Paul as leading Disciple, if you want to put that in modern day perspective, what happened 25 years ago? I had to ask Google this. Google, what happened in uh, 1994? And Google gave me a few uh, cultural landmarks that you might think of. At the theaters were movies like The Lion King and Forrest Gump, not too long ago. The Northridge earthquake in Los Angeles hit with a powerful force and pancaked superhighways that year. Maybe very memorable was O.J. Simpson fleeing from the police when he knew that his wife had been murdered. That was 25 years ago. Now, you really young people can't remember those things, but many of us here can definitely remember those events pretty clearly, and many like them from a 25-year-ago news cycle. People in Corinth knew that this was a fairly recent event and that apostles had gone out. The original disciples, who then were called apostles, went out into the world and were quickly known, according to the book of Acts, as witnesses to the resurrection. That's what the book of Acts called them. Their main purpose was to certify and testify to the resurrection of Christ. Their Christ really lived And they shook up the whole world. When Paul is on trial at the end of Acts, and his story is left in suspense just up to just before he died, but he gave testimony to various officials, and he said, it is for the resurrection of the dead. 
that I am on trial before you this day. That was the the whole central fact that had to be discussed. The resurrection of Christ was historically certain, and yet it was something more. It was transferable. It was not only something that Christ experienced, but the argument was that every Christian will experience that power of God in their life. And he says here that Christ was the first fruits, verse 20, of those who have fallen asleep. What happened to him was just the first instance of what would happen to many, many more. The technical term first fruits, I understand, in biblical times referred to a minor celebration that often happened with the Israelites when uh, the earliest crops were gathered in, the wheat had you know, become ready for harvesting or whatever crop it was, they could pluck some of the first results of a farmer's toil. And they would bring it to the priest who would simply offer a prayer of thanks that the rest of the harvest to come would be as abundant and strong and good to eat as this first appearance. Well, we know that the resurrection is like that. Jesus rising was only the first of what would apply to many, many other people. So we need to think not only of the historical certainty, but the transferability to us of the resurrection. Now, secondly, verses 24 to 28 could be summarized this way. I'll make this statement. The resurrection of Christ caused the death of death. Death is personified here. As an invader, Romans 5.12 talks about the God's good creation in the Garden of Eden and says, sin entered that world and death came in through sin. Adam and Eve threw open the front door and said, come on in. You all come. If we come from the south, come on in, death. Because that's what they invited when they first disobeyed God and thought that they could be God in substitution for the true God. Adam let in an alien presence that was not originally part of God's creation. And death was the invited guest by Adam, by one man, it says here. Adam is that one man. Little did he understand that he was inviting a vandal, a terrorist, one who had come to disrupt and destroy. In Job 18, Job called death the king of terrors. And he came in to devastate the souls and the bodies and the whole human history of all who dwelt in God's world. You know, God made the human body something beautiful. We were made in his image. That includes our physical being. We reflect somehow the beauty, the symmetry, the wonders that God created when he made a human body. But when death came, guess what? The human body was his first target. He came and by cancer and dementia and later on car accidents and what have you, human bodies were broken and shredded and withered and blighted beyond recognition before death, the uninvited guest, was finished with them. Death, we know, shows no pity for the young and no mercy for the old. And it leaves our beautiful younger bodies, everyone gathers around a little infant and says, oh, look, look at this beautiful child. What is it? It's just that 
closeness to human perfection that's there in an infant and a youngster. And I, I, I won't set an age when it disappears because somebody will be surely offended, but uh, I, I do know that the best picture of me my wife possesses, I was 21. All downhill from there, folks. If you're not there yet, you'll find out. The human body is smashed, is harmed, is found to be lacking in so many ways as the approach of death comes nearer and nearer and comes for some at a young age and others, of course, in old age. But we're not owed. You know, the scripture says three score years and ten, that's 70. That's my next birthday. And there are some that would think, okay, then you're done. Well, we know modern medicine lets us often live more than that, but there is that reminder that death will come. It will come. You can't stop it. But this scourge of the Garden of Eden is being defeated wherever God's people cling to the resurrection victory of Christ. We read here in verse 24 a short and dramatic statement that the resurrection will be applied to us and Christ will come, he will appear in glory, bringing with him those who were saved already and have died already. And it says dramatically, then comes the end. God is working all things towards an end, towards a great dramatic day that the Bible simply calls the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's appearing when evil is judged and when the righteous are singled out and protected from judgment and destruction. We'll look at that day in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 later on here in a couple weeks. But when Christ returns, we understand then everything about the resurrection comes full flower, not just first fruits, but the full harvest. And we will receive our everlasting dwelling, a literal new glorified body so much better than the one we have, even the one we had at age 21 or 12. It will be so much better it can't even be described. You can't imagine it. When the hateful enemy of our souls named death will be put down and cast into hell and the rule of Christ will be complete and unopposed by any vandal, any destroyer, any terrorist set loose. And look what verse 28 says here. And God will be all in all. How can you say it better than that? God's complete purpose in history will be realized and he will triumph over all things. And so Paul summarized in 2 Timothy 1 through 10, 110, when he said, Our Savior Christ Jesus came to abolish death and bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what Jesus has already done in his Easter resurrection, and he's doing it now in the lives of Christians who obey him, and he will do it in this glorious way when the end comes. Well, I'll give you a short third point and state it this way. The resurrection of Christ means for every believer a new life begun in the Spirit today and a new body given to us soon enough. Maybe not soon enough for all, particularly those who suffer through this life, a quadriplegic or someone with a fatal disease, a degenerative disease would say, I can't get it soon enough, but we will get it soon enough. A Christian life begins with the rebirth of his soul and spirit. 
Again, I say being born again isn't something that only happens to certain people with an excitable or emotional religion. I hate it when we read in the public press somewhere a little letter and say, well, those so-called born-again Christians, like there's some strange category and there's a whole other category of Christians. There's no other category of true Christians. You are born again or you are not Christ. The gospel speaks of that abundantly. The book of Romans says if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you don't belong to Christ. It's he who comes and regenerates and indwells and makes us new. 1 Corinthians 15.45 here calls Jesus the second Adam, a life-giving spirit. He gives life to all those who are his. God gives the Christian in Christ all new things, new spiritual insight, new morals, new goals. I talked with someone who was defending their lifestyle, living without the benefit of marriage with a young woman. And this person who should have known better said, well, all my friends do that. All the people I know live with their girlfriends. And if if they have a child, they have a child. They don't need to be married. That's not the Scripture's word. God gives us new morals, new goals, new interests, new works, new love for his people and for worship. We have new trust in God, new reasons to pray, new hunger to learn the Word, new friends, new fellowship, new joy. All these things are the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if you've not received that, you really don't belong to Christ. You have a prior need today. You don't just need to think about your resurrection body. You need to think about, oh God, I apparently have not known Christ all my life. I need Him to be my Lord and Savior, to be my stand-in as sin-bearer. Save me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Early Christianity heard the, or carried the good news of Christ, this news I've been talking about, to all points of the earth and to whole landscape as far as the fear of death was changed. I read of a stone that was alongside the Appian Way, which you may know is a famous Roman-built highway, kind of like I-95 for the Romans. And there were, it passed a number of cemeteries and there are stones that still stand today. And one stone says something like, O death, you win all, I lose all. That was a Roman testimony. Because the Romans had no hope. They had no Savior. They had no resurrected Lord. And it might have been in some ways what Old Testament believers faced. If you really want to study what was believed about the future life after death in the Old Testament time, it's an interesting study. It's not really a very encouraging study. You find the Old Testament folks saying, well, I'll be gathered to my fathers, or I'll be united with my ancestors, or uh, I'll be gathered to God. And those are moderately hopeful statements. But they don't include a risen Lord. And actually, there was a lot of mystery for the Old Testament believer. What will happen next? I'm not really sure. But I think God will take care of it. That's about a summation of the Old Testament believer. Well, here... In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about a future that is a sure future, established on a historical fact, transferred to believers, and present in us now today before we ever get those resurrection bodies in a new life. 
a life represented by the power and Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so finally, fourth today, 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and 56 sound forth something I cannot leave behind here. The resurrection of Jesus gives every Christian a new battle cry. Maybe you don't think of that as a battle cry. I do when I see the end of this chapter. If death is waging a war against humanity, which it surely is, we need a battle cry. And it better be one that's based on truth, on facts, not on wishes. I run into Christians who are dealing maybe with a close friend or a family member who's facing a a really negative medical situation. Maybe they have a fatal disease or at least a cancer that is often proves faithful, fatal. And uh, they're praying, and they convey to you, the pastor, as you come to visit, well, I'm sure God's going to heal George. I'm sure. He has to. I get a little wary when I hear, he has to. I'm not ready to dictate that to God. But there are people who think, well, I'm a Christian. I'm, an, I'm a vessel indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God can't let me die. God can't let my husband die. Yes, he can The scripture says it's appointed for every one of us once to die. And Christians are not invulnerable to that. We can die very suddenly. Right in this room, there are people who have lost spouses or close family members to sudden accidents or sudden occurrences, a heart attack or something that took them away and it took your breath away at how quickly, without warning, it came. God doesn't owe us healing in every situation because we are Christians. I hope you won't venture onto that ground. You'll be deeply disappointed. You'll even turn out perhaps to be cynical and embittered and say, well, God doesn't answer prayer. He took my mother away. I'd like to equip you with a battle cry in any situation where you face death and grief. And it's right here in our text. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That deserves to be shouted, not whispered. That is a Christian's battle cry. The resurrection makes the difference. Yes, we die. Every one of us will die. Having been pastor here for a quarter century, I'm estimating Church records could make this exact, but I'm estimating I've presided at the funerals of about 340 people of this congregation. That's a whole congregation. And as far as I know, in terms of the people's faith, nearly every one of those people could have spoken and their relatives could speak this battle cry. Oh, death, where's your victory? It's hollow. It's temporary. It's not lasting. Because I will rise on the last day. My loved one will rise on the last day. And they were alive all the way, even while they were in this failing body, susceptible to all the things that that can overtake us and harm us. I read about a gravestone inscription found at a cemetery in Derbyshire, England. I think they say Derbyshire. The stone was carved with these words, it is reported. Here lies in a horizontal position the outer tall case of Thomas Hind, clockmaker. He departed this life all wound up to the correct hour by his maker and savior, 
and being thoroughly cleaned, repaired, and set a-going once more, he will tell the tale in that great final day. Man envisioned himself as a clock, wound up by God, keeping God's perfect time, ready at God's perfect time to be risen and glorified. That man understood that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ meant new life while on earth and new life forever in the Savior's presence. Does death still rampage around and put its stinger into people? Yes, it can sting once and then it can't sting anymore. Paul was declaring that death is actually a toothless tiger because the resurrection of Jesus has swallowed up his power and sealed his fate. So folks, be sure you review your Easter hope and your Easter songs and your Easter texts more than once a year. A better schedule for doing it might just be every single day. Father, we give you thanks. The end of the cross is not death and blood and burial. The end is an empty tomb. The end is incredulous disciples who never anticipated what happened. Within the lifetime of those people, here was Paul telling those who would read his message in Corinth that the resurrection means everything. It's the key to everything. Father, help us to be people who live that, who hope that way, and who see that beyond the ugliness and the hurt of death is a battle cry sounding forth victory. Thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.